you got five seconds and here's my best advice for you. Hang around with people who have already done what you want to do, right? Because you pick up their habits. You'll become like them. Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast. I'm your host, Michael McKinney. My guest today is Ruben Gonzalez. His childhood dream was to go to the Olympics, and at the tender age of 21, Ruben took up the luge and started training for the Olympics. Four years later, he was racing for the gold against the best in the world. At the age of 47, he was racing against 20-year-olds in the Vancouver Olympics, becoming the first person to ever compete in four Winter Olympics, each in a different decade. He is the author of The Shortcut, a business fable about finding a guide to get you where you want to go. He is also the author of The Courage to Succeed, which explains how consistently and persistently following a set of success principles will help you to realize your potential. Today, we will dive into those principles. Ruben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. uh, (laughs) I'm excited. Ruben, you know, would you describe the luge to us? It looks crazy dangerous from the videos I've seen of it. What is it like to send yourself down an icy mountain at 90 miles an hour with no brakes? It's, it's, it's brutal. Uh, I, uh, you're, you're, no brakes, right? So once you start, you're committed, right? Which is, or you should be committed. So the track is about three quarters of a mile long, starts 50 stories up. Uh, you're up at the start. You got a couple of minutes to go. Uh, a luge run takes about a minute. Coach gives oh. you a little pat in the back and he moves to the side. You got spikes on your fingertips. You'll use to build up speed at the start. You know, test them on the ice. Yeah, they feel good. Uh, it's your turn to go. And then uh, you take a couple of deep breaths, pull down your, your visor, grip the handles, and it's one, two, three, and you pull as hard as you can. You paddle furiously to build up speed and you lay down. And in no time, you're doing 50, 60, 70, 80 miles an hour. And, and as the speed increases, so does the fear. And the world's just doing this. <laughs> And you're focused on a spot about 30 feet in front of you, just flying down the track. Uh, people that watch us on TV, they think all we do is hold on and pray, right? <laughs> well, we hold on, we pray, but we also steer a lot. We're making hundreds of tiny corrections the whole way down to have a perfect line down the track. But it's very responsive, so it doesn't take much. I mean, if you hiccup, that could be enough of a motion to cause you to slam against the wall and crash. Uh, some curves you're pulling six G's, you cross the finish line, and then the adrenaline rush hits you. The, the fear hits you like a sledgehammer, right? It's like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> and uh, you, luckily, there's a bunch of walkie-talkies at the finish line because there's coaches up and down the track. My coach is a four-time Olympian, three-time world, world champion from Austria. It's like Michael Jordan teaching you how to, how to do a layup, right? And uh, pick up the walkie-talkie, and he always, you know, Ruben, you were so late on curve six, you must relax. <laughs> Have fun, relax, click. It's like, how are you going to relax? I'm scared after that. You started when you're five years old. But um, never would have made it without coach. I mean, he always reminds me, you know, he, he, he helps me take the eyes off the of fear and put the eyes back on the dream, right? Right, right. He refocuses uh, on the goal. And, uh, and, and he's a coach that has, has fruit on the trees, right? He actually did it. He's not a theorist. So when he says something, it carries a lot of weight. Wow. Yeah. You know, you originally grew up in Houston, Texas, and the luge doesn't exactly seem like the go-to sport for someone from Texas. I don't associate (laughs) winter sports with Houston. I mean, how did you ever end up going, what I want to do is be in the luge? (laughs) Yeah, I I was born in Argentina. Uh, My dad uh, was a chemical engineer with Exxon. I, I was born in a little refinery town, and we moved to the States when I was six. 
If I'd have stayed in Argentina, I never would have caught the Olympic dream because all they care about over there is soccer. Uh, we're in Queens, New York for a couple of years. Then we went to Houston and I was an oil brat. We moved around a lot, but lived in Houston most of my life. And when I was 10 years old, I saw the Olympics on TV and I was hooked. I thought, man, that's my adventure. That's what I want to do. But I'm not a great athlete. I'm a very unlikely Olympian. I was always the last kid picked for PE. And so I didn't believe it was possible. And so if you don't believe something's possible, why even try? And my dad got, but I was so fascinated by the Olympic dream. I just kept talking about it. My dad got fed up. He said, look, why don't you read some biographies? If you'll study the lives of great people, you'll figure out what works, what doesn't work in life because success leaves clues. He was a very analytical engineer. And um, I started reading biographies and, and I love to read before anyways. And I was looking for something, you know, what's one thing that all these people have in common? And it was perseverance. That's what I kept seeing. You know, they, they were just a bunch of hardheads. Uh, some of them, you know, 20 years they were, uh, you know, banging their head on the wall trying to figure out how to make that dream come true. But they didn't quit. You know, they, they had a shot, right? No guarantees, but at least we're still in the game. And my mom always called me a hardhead. So I thought, hey, maybe I have a little bit of what it takes, right? I just need to develop it. And so I made a decision at 12 years old. I made a decision that changed my life. I decided, hey, if quitting is the end of your dream and, and perseverance, at least you still have a shot. From today on, Ruben doesn't quit anything. And by high school, my nickname was Bulldog because other kids started realizing I was tenacious. And so when I was 21, I'm watching the, the 84 Sarajevo Olympics again on TV. And I see this little guy, about five foot one, must have weighed 110 pounds soaking wet. And he wins the gold medal in figure skating, Scott Hamilton. Now, when I saw Scott Hamilton, he gave me hope. I thought if that little guy can win, I won't be in the next ones no matter what. It's a done deal. I just have to find a sport. So for the first, I always had the desire, right? But I never had the, the belief. Now I had them both. And so the courage to succeed, you need to have two types of courage, right? You have to, to, to reach your dream. You have to have the courage to get started. And everything's hard in the beginning. So you have to stay in the, in the game long enough to learn the skills. And then you use the skills to reach the goal of the dream. Uh, and so um, the, the courage to get started comes from believing it's possible. Courage to not quit, that comes from your desire. You want, you want something badly enough, ain't nothing going to make you quit. And so I see Scott Hamilton and everything changed. I thought if that guy can do it, I, you know, I'll, I'll be in it. And so I went to the library and I have a goal with a deadline, right? In four years, I'm either in or out. There's no time to waste. I get this big book about the Olympics. First, I started looking at the summer sports. It took me five minutes to realize, man, you got to be Superman to do any of these things. There's no way. And then I started looking at the list of the winter sports and the analytical side of my brain kicked in. I thought, I'm about to put together a plan for the next four years. It would probably would make sense to base the plan on my strengths. My strengths, not athleticism. My strengths, perseverance. I'm bulldog. So I thought, I need to find a sport that's so tough. A sport's got so many broken bones in it. There'd be a lot of quitters. Only I won't quit. I'll ride the attrition rate all the way to the top. I had it down to ski jump, bobsled, and luge. I'd never skied before. That would have been suicide. That was out. And bobsled, where are you going to find three other nuts in Houston want to do the bobsled? Forget it. And luge, you can do by yourself. I'd never seen it on TV. If I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. I had a little picture of a guy in a luge, and I thought that's the one for me. And uh, I wrote Sports Illustrated because I didn't know where the track was, so I wrote them. To ask them, where do you go learn how to luge? And they wrote back and they said, Lake Placid, New York. That's where the track is. So I call Lake Placid. I'm in, and this is, you know, just a couple of weeks after I see Scott Hamilton, right? I'm, I'm on fire. I call him up and say, I'm an athlete here in Houston. I want to learn how to luge. So I've been in the Olympics for four years. 
well, how old are you? 21. And he started laughing. He said, forget it, man. We start them off when they're eight or nine years old. By now, you should have 10 years experience. There's no way. And the only thing I knew was that hanging up is not an option, right? That would have been the end of the dream. So I just kept talking, talking, talking. Finally, he gets fed up. He says, okay, you know, we got a beginner's camp coming up in a few weeks. Be there. But before you come, you need to know two things. Number one, you want to do it at your age? You want to do it in just four years? It's brutal. Nine out of 10 people quit. I started smiling. I thought, wow, this works right into my plan, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's the second thing? He said, expect to break some bones. And I said, great, right? And he got real quiet. He goes, what's wrong with you, man? I just told you you're going to break some bones that makes you happy. I told him, I hope it's 10 times harder, right? Because I I was praying that the Germans would quit (laughs) because they dominate the the sport. And then I hang up the phone and the reality hit, right? It's like, man, he didn't say I, uh, I might break some bones. He said, you will, right? So then I started thinking, wow, okay, uh, what am I going to do when I break a bone? And I thought, you know, I've broken bones before. You wear a cast for six weeks, you take off the cast, it's healed up stronger than before. So it's really a temporary inconvenience. So I reframed it and, and I was ready, right? I put on mental armor that allowed me to, to uh, uh, contingency plan, right? And, uh, and so when I went, it was tough. It was brutal. But um, but I kept on keep, keep it on, and and <laughs> four years later I'm in the Olympics. Wow! So much of success in life is an inner game. It's a it's a mindset, and so it sounds like you had to do a lot of preparation mentally for it. I mean, the, the visualization, the perseverance, and the two types of courage you were talking about. Uh, how did you prepare mentally to keep your mind focused on where where you're trying to go, what you're trying to do? Well. For one thing, everybody asked me, who, who's your sponsor, Ruben? Uh, Pepsi, Coke, uh, Nike? <laughs> my sponsors are Visa and MasterCard, right? My own. <laughs> I put everything on the card. And I didn't go on dates, right? Because that was, you know, every penny I could save, uh, you know, I would. I would mow lawns. I was going to college, but I would do extra jobs. I'd do whatever I could to save up money. And when the first cold front hit Houston, that's the beginning of the, of the loose season. So I'd go. And when I ran out of money, that was the end of my, my season. I had a lot of half season, right? Because I started so late, the guy said, look, if you do it at your age, we're going to, it takes 10 years to learn how to lose. Okay. It takes 10 years to get somebody from the bottom of the track to men's start. And, uh, but in order for you to do it in just four years, we're going to have to compress everything into just two years. You're going to get hurt a lot because of that. You know, we're going to be, you're going to be cramming basically. And the last two years, we're going to throw you to the wolves. You have to compete against the best in the world to try to get these world cup points. Cause only the top 50 get to go 51 watches it on TV. And so the first two years I'm breaking bones and I'm coming back. I broke my foot twice, my knee, my elbow, my hand, my thumb, a couple of ribs, but I just kept coming back and people were quitting left and right. Cause they have a bruise. I couldn't believe it. Right. Maybe they didn't, you know, prepare themselves mentally. Maybe they didn't want it badly enough. Right. But I wasn't willing to do anything for it. And I was, uh, that's all I cared about. I was just focused on that. And that's, you know, if you want to reach a really high goal, that's what it takes. Uh, so sometimes when, the, when, when uh, after uh, doing a presentation, somebody will ask, we'll do some Q&A. And if somebody will ask, uh, well, what about life uh, balance, right? I said, well, you know what? If you want to reach another level, a higher level, you need to get unbalanced temporarily. Okay. You got to focus on, on, on that goal. And if you want to do it fast, you have to get even more unbalanced. And, um, and I was willing to do that because why? Because of the desire, 
right? Right. Um, the regret of quitting would have been much more painful to me, right? Than mm -hmm. the broken bones. Uh, they were really a, they really were a temporary inconvenience. And yeah. In the luge, we only take a maximum of six, seven, six uh, runs a day. Three runs, two or three runs in the morning. Then we go to lunch, two or three runs in the afternoon. Then we watch videos of our runs, right, to uh, debrief. And, and then uh, we'll spend uh, about an hour every night working on our sleds, right, preparing our steels for, for the next day. And then the night before, um, before a race, we'll spend a couple of hours because we go, oh gosh, usually we'll take it up to like 1200 grit sandpaper, but uh, the, the night of the race, we'll go five uh, grades of diamond paste, right? We get it down to wow. about a micron. You look at yourself in those steels. It's the only sport that's timed to the one one thousandth of a second. So everything counts. Even your breathing counts. And so how are you going to get good on six runs a day? And so you do a lot of visualization. Uh -huh. and, uh, and before... Let's say we, we, we just flew from, from Innsbruck to Calgary, right? And I've been to Calgary. I've got hundreds of runs in Calgary, but it doesn't matter. As soon as we get to, to, to the city, we walk the track with coach, right? We start at the top and we're slipping and sliding the whole way down. It's a two-hour process and coach is giving us the lines, right? He's giving us the, the answers to the test. He says, look, here you want to enter no more than two inches from the left wall. And over here, give it about a three, where, where zero is no steering and 10 is everything you got. Over there, give it about a five. In the middle, hold it up. At the end, crank it out with everything you got. But remember, counter steer, otherwise you'll hit the other wall. And we're just writing it all down, right, or tape recording it. And then when we get to the hotel, we're visualizing those runs, and we're, we're taking a bunch of mine runs to, you know, to learn it, right? Right. And um, so that's what we do uh, the night before, the, for when we first arrive. The rest of the week, before a, an actual training run or, or race run, we'll do about 10 mine runs of the perfect run, right? Because you want to get into a good group, right? And, uh, and, but at the hotel, we do, uh, we call it escape routes. Uh, it's uh, contingency planning. What am I going to do if I'm a little late in the curve one? What am I going to do if I'm a little early? What about if I hit the left wall? What if I hit the right wall? Okay, curve two. And you go through all 15 or 16 curves uh, preparing, right? Prepare for the worst and, and, and hope for the best, right? But that gives you confidence because you get to the point where you realize, okay, I can handle whatever happens here. I can fix sure. it, right? And so uh, that's what it takes. And you do that for four years and hopefully you cracked into the top 50 and then you get to go race for five minutes at the Olympics because it's four <laughs> runs, four minutes. <laughs> yeah. You know, you said a, a boxer taught you positive self-talk. Yeah, the yeah. importance of it, or this is my, this is before my first Olympics. Yeah, uh, I, I used to work out at this little uh, hole in the wall gym in Houston, and one day in walks Evander Holyfield. Okay, he just won the heavyweight fight. Remember, he was a light heavyweight, right, Evander? And then he moved up to to full heavyweight, and everybody thought he was going to get killed. And he won and he was an all, he was a big deal because every, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he's in all the magazines, right? Lou Duva, he was his, his uh, manager. So Lou Duva shows up in, in our gym with his whole team. Right. And so as soon as he walks in we see Evander, everybody, including me, started doing the same thing. It's like we started whispering real loud. That's Evander Holyfield. What's he doing here? And nobody had the guts to say hello and me neither. But the littlest one of all, He's about Scott Hamilton size. Uh, he didn't look so intimidating. So I thought, I'm talking to the little guy. 
So the little guy gets in a stationary bike. He starts warming up. And I go next to him and I start warming up. And I knew he was a boxer, but I wanted to start a conversation, right? Create some rapport. So I asked him, well, what do you do? What's your sport? I box. What do you do? I'm a loser. And he goes nuts. He goes, a loser? Don't you ever call yourself a loser, man. You're a winner. You're a winner. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everybody got off their machines or stretching their necks and wanted to see who the loser was. I almost walked out and joined a different club, right? <laughs> I says, luge, man. It's like the bobsled. Because back then, he had to explain it to everybody. And finally, he gets it. He goes, oh, sorry, man. I thought you called yourself, called yourself a loser. I said, yeah, now everybody thinks I am. Well, <laughs> it turns out this guy was Vinny Pazienza. Okay, he was the reigning world champion, lightweight boxer, right? The Paz man, remember? He, uh, he actually had a broke his neck a couple of years later and he had the halo and he came back and he won again. The guy's a beast. Hey, he's got a movie. And so when I found out who he was, I mean, if I didn't know he was a champ, I wouldn't have talked to him either. Okay, back then, that's where my self image. Sure. <laughs> but when I found out who he was, I thought, man, why didn't you freak out when you thought I called myself a loser? And he goes, you ought to know better, Ruben. Winners don't call themselves stupid. Champions don't call themselves idiots, right? And he says, this is what you need to do. You get yourself a rubber band, big old thick one, okay? And you wear it for a month. Every time you catch yourself bad-mouthing yourself or bad-mouthing somebody else, you pop yourself as hard as you can, I mean, really hard, and then replace that bad word with a, a positive word because the mind doesn't want to, doesn't uh, like a vacuum, right? You got to fill it with something. And back then, my and I, I thought it was dumb, right? I thought, man, I'm a college graduate, dude. And he goes, hey, it worked for me. It worked for Evander. They watched me over Evander. He goes, hey, how about that rubber band thing? Does it work? Yeah, it does. It's my whole conversation with him, right? But <laughs> I, wore, I wore it for a month, and it changed my life. I mean, after three weeks, I, I used to call myself an idiot back then. I'd do something dumb and go, you idiot, right? I'd really drive it into my subconscious. And I started, pow, I'm not an idiot. I'm a winner. <laughs> and over and over and over. And after about three weeks, I, I nipped it in the bud, right? I do something dumb. I go, oh, you, I'm a winner, <laughs> right? I took a bad habit and took it into a better habit. And around that time, my friends, they started noticing, right? Something different about me. I said, Ruben, what is it, man? Did you get a haircut or something? <laughs> I said, no, man, I'm, I'm more positive now. And I started noticing there's a lot of bad mouthing going on amongst my friends. And so I started hanging around with a different group of friends. So I didn't want that secondhand negative to infect me right and went back to what my dad had always said i mean he was a he was always preaching three things he'd say if you have to cross across a minefield find somebody who's already crossed it right follow the leader that was one thing the other one the books you read and the people you hang around with those two things will determine whether you reach your goals and so it went back to that and i've i've got let me show you i just have it on the side but see i got my bookcase too and Ah, yes. <laughs> and I got a, and I got them all over the place. I mean, I've been a student of success all my life. I love it. But um, if I had to counsel somebody and tell them, you got five seconds, and here's my my best advice for you: hang around with people who have already done what you want to do, right? Because you pick up their habits. Makes and sense. You'll become like them, and you become like the people you hang around with. And you and sometimes I'll joke to to the audience and say, "Okay, you want to lose ten pounds? You want the best diet in the world?" Hang around skinny people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you start riding bikes and eating salads. You wouldn't even notice it. And the weight will just, you know, melt off because you pick up their habits. And uh, that's, that's the simplest thing to do. What it takes. And, yeah. And get started and don't quit. Right. And, and outwork the competition. <laughs> and then people start calling you lucky. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, now you said the uh, the German luge team taught you about commitment. Yeah, <laughs> the Germans. Where did you meet them at the Olympics, or? No, no, I met them uh, two years after I got started uh, luging. Uh, now imagine, imagine you're or imagine look think back when you were 16 years old. You got your driver's permit, right? And you're so excited, but you're not much of a driver. You can't even make that right that right turn without the back wheel of the car hitting uh, the curb, right? That's where you are. That's where I was in luge after two years of cramming through. I was barely getting down, okay? Oh. Now they throw me into the World Cup circuit. Now imagine that 16-year-old kid is in a room, and on the other side of that wall is the Indianapolis 500 Speedway. And you start looking around, and it's like, hey, wait a minute, that's A.J. Foyt. Hang on, that's Al Unser, Mario Andretti. What, what am I doing here? I don't, I don't belong here. And I had that crisis of confidence because I'm in a room filled with Olympic athletes. And, and I hadn't paid the price. These guys have probably been sliding for 15 years, longer, right? And so I would go to the darkest corner of the start house where I didn't even have to look at anybody. And I would just put on the blinders and I would just focus. Just keep, I focus on the World Cup points. I just, just keep doing it, keep doing it, get these World Cup points. Don't worry about what anybody says. Well, meanwhile, the Germans who totally dominate the sport, they've won 80% of the medals in the last 50 years, okay? That's total domination. They won't give me the time of day. I might be walking down the track and there's a bunch of Germans working on a sled. And, hey, Hans, how you doing? Nothing. It's like I'm, in, uh, like I'm invisible, right? And that just uh, confirmed, you know, what I was thinking. I don't belong here. I felt like an ant. I felt it was terrible. Mm-hmm. First two years was a physical challenge, right? Breaking bones. But that psychological challenge was a lot worse. At least it was for me. And uh, I make the, uh, make the Calgary Olympics, 1988. And barely, but I made it. And it wasn't until two, two years after the, the Calgary Olympics, I'm walking down the track. One of the German spots me. He goes, Gonzalez, what? Speedy Gonzalez. Hey, how are you? <laughs> and I got pissed. I thought, what do you mean Speedy Gonzalez, man? I've been nice to you guys for about four years now. You won't even say hello to me and I'm Speedy Gonzalez. He goes, come, we must talk to you. And they gave me the talk, right? The whole coaching team, the coaches, the the whole team, the big old table, right? And I says, look, we have four tracks in a country the size of Texas. Back then, the only tracks in North, when I got started, the only track in North America was Lake Placid. Then they built Calgary for the Olympics and they built Park City for the Salt Lake City Olympics. And then the, the one up in Whistler for, um, for Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But you only build one when you get the Olympics. Back then they had four tracks because see, success is a decision, okay? <laughs> Sooner or later, you, you you, you just get mad, right? And you say to yourself, man, that's it. It's like Rocky, right? Rocky won. He gets, he gets I ain't going down no more. And they start playing that music and no, you know something good's going to happen, right? right? But when you have that Rocky that Rocky uh, moment, right? Uh, you're finally ready, you know, willing to do whatever it takes for as long as it takes to get the job done. And the Germans, 50 years ago, they, they decided we're going to dominate the sport. We're going to, you know, we're going to uh, invest in it, right? So they built four tracks and they're telling me, look, some of us started when we were five. We, and after a few years, we're the best in our town. Then we were the best in our, in our region. Then we make the national team. Ten men, ten women get to make the national team. Then we make the Olympic team. Only three men and three women from each country get to make that. But there's so many great, great losers from Germany. We'll be lucky to make one or two, right? There's so much competition. But when we're done, we're going to become coaches, see for the rest of our lives because we dedicate we love the sport and we dedicate our lives to continue this legacy right 
And we're sick and tired of seeing people from other countries. They come, they do one Olympics and they disappear. You know what we call them? I said, no, what? Olympic tourists, always with a little camera. Uh-huh. <laughs> but this is two years after your first Olympics. Obviously, you're trying to make the Alperville Olympics. Whether you make it or not, doesn't matter to us. What matters to us is that you are respecting the sport. So now you have earned our respect. Your commitment, commitment. your respect. And I, I, I have goosebumps everywhere right now. I mean, I'm covered with it uh, because that's my gold medal, really, you know, earning those guys' respect. And when you watch Cool Runnings, uh, the, the Jamaican bobsledders, mm-hmm. the reason they got bullied, right? And, and Calgary was uh, Jamaican bobsledders. It was Eddie the Eagle and it was me. Okay. I'm the only one without a movie. And so, <laughs> so at first, when I saw the Jamaicans, I saw it firsthand. I saw it, saw them getting bullied by the Swiss. I thought it was racial, right? I assume got to be racial, right? But then afterwards, I became friends with one of the original uh, Jamaican bobsledders. He's a professional speaker too. And Devin was telling me, no, it wasn't racial. We just hadn't paid the price. We had only been sliding for four months. Okay, uh, we really hadn't been. I mean, and so. That's how it is. You know, you got to you got to earn the respect of the ones that who have paid the price, who have been in the trenches. And, uh, you know, and so I uh, yeah, that's my that's my gold medal. You know, well, that's that's very good. It's very good. And, you know, as we start trying to apply these principles then to other areas of our lives, personally and in business. So, you you know, you're, you're talking about perseverance. You're talking about a commitment, paying the price. There's also uh, preparation is what got you through. To, especially in dealing with the changes, like the changes in the track or the changes in not making the turn right or not making the adjustments that you needed to make. So thinking through all that stuff. And that's the kind of thing we need to do in our personal lives and in our businesses. Absolutely. And um, <laughs> it's funny. A few years ago, I'd already been speaking professionally for probably 12 years. And I get this call from Italy and uh, this uh, lady from Alcatel Lucent, uh, like a, they're a billion dollar uh, telecommunications company. And uh, we're having our European sales kickoff. And I said, okay, well, uh, what's, what's the theme of your event? It, it's change, right? Well, I didn't even have change listed as one of my topics, right? And I said, it's change. You know, we, we used to sell, we used to, actually, before she said that, she said, any, I said, well, why did you call me? And she says, well, anybody could change sports at the age of 21, make it to the Olympics, must know something about change. I thought, yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> so I said, what's going on? And they said, well, we're, we're, we used to change. We used to sell boxes and now we sell cloud services and we sell our stuff through uh, resellers. And so they're, they're having a trouble transitioning. I said, well, that's funny. I used to sell copiers back in the 90s and we went through the same thing. We used to, you know, when I got started, it was analog. Then it went to digital and the people that couldn't adjust to the change, they lost their jobs. And so I, I you know, whenever there's change, Whoever adjusts first wins, right? And and like in the luge, I'm praying that the temperature is going to change, or it's going to start snowing, or it's going to stop snowing. Because then, if you're if you can adjust, right, put on those rain tires on, right, on your racing car quickly, man, I might beat somebody I usually don't beat. And so, when you get that in your head, that change change is a pain in the butt, but it's an opportunity, right? Right, right. Adjust real quick, right? And you see it in tennis all the time. You know, Nadal wins the first set. And then Djokovic, he makes an adjustment. He wins the second set. And Nadal, he's no dummy. He makes an adjustment. He wins the third. It's always back and forth. And that's his life. I mean, it's not just luge and sports and tennis. This is life. Right, right. Uh, you know, listening to your story, you've had a lot of mentors. 
You've sought out a lot of mentors. And uh, your new book, The, The Shortcut, is about the importance of mentors and seeking them out. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, after 20 years of speaking professionally, and that's all I've done for 20 years, I did my first TED Talk. And, uh, and, it, and it's, the, it's called The Power of Following the Leader. This was just a couple of months ago, maybe three or four months ago. The Power of Following the Leader. And it's because I was a hardhead, right? That mental strength and, and stick to and perseverance that helped me get through those early years of the lose, right? When, when you get hurt so much. Well, it also made me a hardhead. And so I had trouble following the leader. I, I never had any trouble seeking out the leader, right? But then when they told me something, I would resist. I always learned things the hard way. In fact, one of my early coaches, Dimitri, he was, um, he, he's from uh, Ukraine. And Dimitri he said, yeah, Ruben, you weren't bulldog. You were half bulldog, half mule. <laughs> if, if you had just listened, you know, to me and, you know, more, you wouldn't have gotten hurt half as much. But you're, you know, And so I resisted the coach for three Olympics, okay? I mean, I made it to the first three in spite of myself. And then on the way to the fourth one, I was going to be 47, and I was going to be the oldest person to compete in the luge, you know, uh, in, in the Olympics. And, uh, and now it's going to be the top 40. It wasn't just going to be the top 50. It's going to be the top 40. So they keep adding sports, but they want to keep it at 3,000 athletes in the Winter Olympics. And so I felt like I had my back to the wall, and I realized, man, I better do whatever it takes, right? And whatever it takes is listen to the coach, right? I don't have the luxury to resist. And so I started listening right away and I started improving so much quickly that I was sliding better at 55 than I ever had before, just because I listened to coach. The learning curve just shot straight up. Uh. And so I, um, when that TED talk came out, and, and if you want to listen to it, it's, I actually got a URL that points to it. It's uh, followtheleaderteddtalk.com, right? And that just points to the, my talk on, on the TED website, follow the leader TED talk. And so, um, I started getting letters and emails and stuff. And I guess it hit a, it struck a chord with a lot of people. So I thought, Hmm, maybe there's a book in this. And so I wrote this uh, parable book uh, that's about a young executive who runs one of five different uh, regions of this, uh, this company. And even though he's got two MBAs from, you know, Wharton, I mean, he looks great in paper, but he's just like me. He won't listen to the leader, right? He's a hard man. <laughs> and so, um, and so he has to learn, right? And I won't say anything else, but he, the, it's it's a story of how how he meets these mentors and they teach him you got to follow the leader. And then he when he changes, you know, everything starts changing for him, just like it did for me. And so and so that one's called the shortcut because the the I, I believe the only shortcut out there, right? The shortcut to success is you know find find someone that's already done what you want to do. So find your leader, follow right. the leader, and then. You can be the leader, right? You can be a better leader than you were before because you're going to be at a different level. Right. And absolutely. then what do you do? Well, then you look to the next level, right? Okay, who, who's the next leader? I need? You never stop, right? You never arrive. Uh, you, you're always improving yourself. You know, that also then speaks to the importance of having a purpose in mind because it helps you to take action and keeps you going. And it builds on your commitment. And you obviously had that from the very beginning as a higher yeah. purpose. That's It's huge. When I got to the Salt Lake City Olympics, that was 10 years after the Albertville Olympics, because I quit. After Albertville, I quit. I was going to do other stuff. And for six years, I didn't slide. And then my coach, the, the Austrian guy, he talked me into coming back. He said, man, U.S. has got the best Olympic spirit. You must come back. Anyway, so I went back. And when I got there to the Olympic Village, 
I felt like a dad visiting his kids in college, right? Because yeah, I was 39 and everybody else in their 20s. And then to make it worse, everybody was asking me, I was like, you know, what are you coaching? What are you what what sport? No, I'm an athlete. They look at me up and down. They go, no, come on, what are you coaching? (laughs) And so so, um, I got it in my head that, okay, I guess this will be my last one because obviously I'm too old, right? It's that, you know, you you buy into that stuff. And um, and I'm a big coffee drinker. So the the shortcut, lots of scenes take place in Cafe Olympia and you'll you'll see, right? But I would go to the, the... in the Olympic Village, they had a little coffee shop, and I'd get a four-shot espresso, and and then I'd uh, go get a free massage because you know I had free massages. And then I'd, this is after my my event was over, okay. Uh-huh. And then uh, go watch you know some skiing or something, come back, and you know that, I, I'd hit that coffee shop a bunch of times. But then I would look around when I was in the coffee shop, and I and I asked them, you know, I asked the different athletes, hey, tell me your story. How'd you get here? And the things that they had to overcome made mine seem puny. Right. Mm. Because, you know, it was everybody had to overcome something to get there. And one day I I saw this gal who was also stood out because she was in her mid 30s. And I went up to her and I said, how'd you get here? You know, tell me your story. And she was this Hungarian lady and she lived in Park City. But her dream ever since she was a little girl, she wanted to be an Olympic bobsledder. But it didn't exist. Olympic bobsledder was only for men. And then it was announced five years before Salt Lake City that uh, they're going to have women's bobsled. Only the top 15, one, five sleds were, were going to get to go because it was just like the first time we're going to try it out. And so she gets all excited. She goes to bobsled school, right, driving school. And then uh, she um, uh, maxed out her credit cards, bought a bobsled, flew back to Hungary because she had to find a brakeman, right? It has to be somebody that's really powerful and strong and fast. So she held tryouts and she found her name was... Um, Ildiko, Ildiko Strelli. That was the girl that I met at the coffee shop. She meets, she finds this girl the the, the wind. She was like the uh, uh, the Hungarian discus throwing champion. Her name was Eva, Eva Kurti. And so they start training. And a year and a half before the Olympics, Ildiko, the driver, she gets breast cancer and she's got to get a double mastectomy. And wow. she's laying in the hospital, wiped out. And mentally, she's done. You know, she figures, I'm going to have strength to walk. I'm going to be in the Olympics. I'm done. And Eva, her teammate, brings her Lance Armstrong's book about how he overcame cancer to, you know, to win the Tour de France. And it, it, it re-inspired her. And she said, you know what? I'm going to do it. But I'm going to do it not for me. I'm going to do it to show cancer survivors that cancer will knock you down, but it has, doesn't have to knock you out. Right. They painted their sled pink. They put a pink ribbon on it. And it says sled full of hope. That was the name of it. They start training again. And on, at the end of qualification, they're number 16. They missed it by one. And then last minute, Canada decides not to send their Canada 2 sled because it wasn't, even though it qualified, it wasn't up to Canadian standards. That bumped her up to 15 and she got to go. Oh, and I gave her this big hug. I told her, you know what? I would rather know you than all the medal winners combined. This year what the Olympics are all about. That excites me, you know, the, the sure. spirit, right? If somebody's willing to do that. And so it was the purpose, like you said, the purpose changed. It wasn't about her. She found a higher purpose. I'm going to do it to help cancer survivors. And, uh, and that gave her the, the, you know, the drive to, to fight. That's the Olympic spirit, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, Ruben, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your stories and the principles of what you use to bring success in your life. And uh, I'm wondering now, what's the best way for us to get in contact with you? I guess the, the easiest 
Website is um, thelugeman.com, T-H-E-L-U-G-E-M-A-N.com, thelugeman.com. The uh, Iceman is taken. It would have been so much easier, but it's the Luge Man. <laughs> All right. Visit thelugeman.com. You'll find more links and resources at the end of the program notes. And Ruben, thank you for sharing your passion and commitment and your Olympic spirit with us today. You've been listening to the Leadership Now podcast. Our guest today was Ruben Gonzalez. You can find out more about Ruben and his work at thelugeman.com. Join us next time for more insights on leadership and personal growth to help you lead like never before.